Amen. Thank you. Uh, hopefully you have a Bible with you. If you would join me uh, in the Word of God, and that's a key title for this book that we're going to look into. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is the third week, not only of being in Matthew 4, but the third week of being in the same 11 verses. And the thing is, it's not like we've done two verses and then three and then six. Um, we, we keep hitting all of the 11 verses each time, but a little different angle on them each time. And so I want to invite you to um, follow along. I hope you are not bored with this passage yet. Hopefully we noticed a difference in week two versus week one and then today as well. And so for time's sake, um, I want to jump right in to the text. Some of you by now hopefully are like, I think I, I can about quote some of this as much as we've read it. That's, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, so Matthew chapter 4, again, the setting is Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist who announced, who saw the Holy Spirit descend on Christ and remain on him. And then that was John's clue that that is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. He announced him as such. But then a strange thing happens as we move to chapter 4, verse 1. Then, so after the baptism, then Jesus was led. So this is not him doing this. Jesus was led. The Holy Spirit's new on him. Jesus was led up by the Spirit. So this is part of God's plan. Everything's on schedule. He's right where he's supposed to be. Into the wilderness. It's not a little temporary time in the wilderness. He goes to the wilderness, led there, to be tempted, that's the purpose of the whole thing, by the devil. And after fasting, so this means he doesn't eat, not for a short time, a long time, 40 days and 40 nights, so that we know that this is a literal statement, 40 days and 40 nights, naturally the next three words, he was hungry. So get the picture, Jesus is alone for 40 days, he hasn't eaten for 40 days, he is hungry, and sure enough, as you would expect, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, if, if you are the Son of God, the implication here, then you have power. You look foolish down there. You're getting skinny. You're wasting away. Your skin is clingy. You look a little dehydrated. You look terrible. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You've got the power. Just use it to serve yourself. But he answered, no. Watch this. That is not what Jesus said, though that is implied. This is a key point, even as we're reading. I want you to go ahead and start getting into the idea of what we're going to be looking at. Jesus doesn't just say, no, not going to do it. He says, it is written. So he quotes Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone. But you need the bread. Yes, I do. But man shall not live by bread alone. Something outranks. I am great need of food, but something outranks even that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. We've said before, a couple of options. Temple proper, the actual physical structure of the temple, probably 100, 150 feet in the air. Or the temple complex with its portico overlooking the Kidron Valley, 450 feet high. Either one, this is a high place. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple, verse 6. 
And the tempter, Satan, said to him, If you are the Son of God, if you are questioning him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He's literally trying to talk Christ into an attempted suicide. But here's what he does. He pulls in, Satan pulls in Psalm 91. And so he's going to use some Bible too, for it is written. You've quoted Scripture. Satan knows how to quote Scripture. For it is written, and he's telling Jesus this. If you're the Son of God, then you know Psalm 91 applies to you, and it does. Satan quotes it. He, God, will command his angels, those standing right around us here, we could imagine. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You couldn't hit the bottom if you wanted to. Go ahead and jump. Just do it. Do what I'm telling you. One, two, three. Go. Now, what are you waiting on? Just do it. It'll be great. The Jews will love it. Verse 7. Jesus said to him, He's not denying Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is true. But notice a key word. Again, it is written, in addition to Psalm 91, another part of Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I could and they would, but I'm not going to because you don't put the Lord your God to the test. So verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world no doubt in some special way. There's no mountain high enough you could see to all the kingdoms. But from here, he's, he's some way Satan is showing him all the kingdoms of the world, that he is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the world, the ruler of this world, has control over. And he shows him their glory. And in verse 9, Satan says to Jesus, All these, all these kingdoms, all their glory, I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. If you'll just fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. So a third time Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Again, chapter 6. You shall worship the Lord. He's having a conversation with Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And verse 11 is very interesting. Then, after three rounds, three Bible studies, three quotations from Scripture, a correction and a, and a fuller look at the passage that Satan offered, then the devil left him. By the way, let me say this. He does not leave him forever. Satan will come back in the garden. Satan will come back and even try to use Peter's well-meaning words for Jesus not to go to the cross. Satan will tempt again. But for this time, he left. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So, guys, here's what I want to do. I realize most of you were here the last two weeks. Some of you were not here for one of the weeks. But either way, I want us to take, and it'll take just a few minutes, but I want us to quickly review what we've looked at because, as I said before, in my mind, I thought we were going to be having one message on verses 1 through 11 with three points, and then it ended up each week was one of those points. And so if you were here two weeks ago, this will sound familiar. If you weren't, you may want to go on graceviewchurch.com. I got a little plug in there, Brandon. graceviewchurch.com, and you would be able to pull up the messages for me the last week or the week before. Let's quickly review. Here's what we've looked at. First week, this wasn't the title of the message, but it was the theme. Sin is tempting. Sin is tempting. And so I confess that as I read this passage a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, I really struggled. I found some questions, and they were not easy questions. And so we, we sent, spent about 30 minutes looking at these difficult questions. We had four. Let's review them. Number one, 
This one I struggled with. Lord, what's the whole purpose of this? Why is Jesus being led out in the wilderness? 40 days is a long time. Your son's only on earth for 33 years. He's in, 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 Lord, he's just hidden away for 30 of those years. And now he's finally brought out in the public eye. He's announced to be the son of God. He's only going to minister for two and a half, three years. 40 days is a long time. This is such a waste of time. Why? Do a quick little temptation. There he passed. Move on. Think of all the people he could have healed. All the teaching he could have done in addition to what he did. Why? We offered five reasons. Number one, to prove Jesus' humanity. I shared a personal testimony that I've been in a specific setting multiple times where I could sense the people, not with their, not with their arm, but with their body language and their countenance, were keeping me at bay but receptive towards someone else, saying the same truth I'm giving, but in their mind, I believe the problem was this. Well, you can't relate. You've not been tempted with what we've been tempted with. You've not experienced our struggle with a specific sin. So we're not receiving from you. So it was important that Jesus' humanity was revealed. Yes, he was tempted. Secondly, why was this so important? Why did this happen? To prove that Jesus really is the sinless son of God. Keep moving. Number three, to teach to us that being tempted is not an unusual, strange event. So let's all be, let's just mark it in our mind. You may be sitting here this morning saying, Jeff, if you knew the things that I've been tempted with just this past week, well, join the club. It's not a strange thing. But I thought I'd be much further. I, th- I thought I wouldn't be tempted by sin anymore. It is not, if the Son of God was tempted by sin, it is not a strange thing if you were tempted by sin. These next two points were really the springboards to week two and today. What's the purpose? To expose Satan's tactics, which we looked at last week. And then fifthly, why? What's the purpose of Jesus being tempted? To illustrate how to overcome temptation. Watch what Jesus did in it. That's one of the main reasons. He showed us something. A second question. We delved into this. It wasn't that long, but this was more of a simple one. Is being tempted to sin, isn't that the same thing? When I am drawn and attracted towards something that is sinful and evil, it's attractive to me. Haven't I already sinned? No, you haven't. Obviously, when you do the act, you have sinned. But just being attracted, that initial attraction is not sin, but you don't even have to get to the act. It becomes sin when you let your mind start dwelling on it, letting it sink into your being, into your heart, into your will. And once it does that, you're going to carry out the act. But the initial attraction, if you do like Christ and turn from it, you have not yet committed sin. A third one, this one really bothered me because we we took a, a little field trip over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, James says that God cannot be tempted with sin. So Jesus is God, that's a contradiction. God can't be tempted with sin. Jesus is God, he's tempted here in the wilderness. Second thing James says is God does not tempt any man. But yet verse number 1 is very clear that God is the one who is allowing all of this and even sent Christ out into the wilderness to be tempted. There's contradiction. James 1 contradicts and goes against what we see exemplified in Matthew 4. Well, that was a little bit of a dilemma. I offered three suggestions. Number one, how can the Bible say God cannot be tempted with sin but Jesus was? Remember this, God cannot be tempted. God has never been tempted. Sin is not tempting to God, it's repulsive. But the man, Jesus Christ, who has human appetites, 
can be tempted to sin. Well, how can it say that God does not tempt anyone, and yet we're reading this in Matthew 4, and sometimes I feel like God has you know, orchestrated things, and he's the one who's tempting me. No, you are being drawn away of your own lust, enticed by your individual brand of temptation. But we also noted a couple of things. This is key. For God to allow temptation is not the same as God tempting and trying to trap. And that led us to the third thought that we had under that. This was important. So Strong's Concordance gave us a definition for the same word tempting, tempt, that's in Matthew 4 as it is in James chapter 1. Same word, but it has four options of meaning. Watch. It can mean to test, to tempt, to try to trap, or to examine. And one of the things we learned is God, the Father, when it comes to His Son, is testing the character of His Son. He's examining the character of His Son by exposing Him to these temptations. But Satan has those second and third types of temptations. He is wanting to tempt Jesus to sin. He's hoping He will trap Him into sinning. God's motive is the first and fourth use of this word. Satan's motive is the second and third use of that word. So that led to the fourth question. So was it possible Jesus could have sinned? And in here, we're going to have difference of opinion. I'm not guaranteeing mine was right. Some people say, yes, Jesus could have sinned. He's a human being. Of course he could have sinned. Others say, like myself, he couldn't have sinned because he is God. He's God and man, not even two hands. He's one, God and man. And his divine nature, his God nature, is so much more opposed and offended by sin, it really is, than his human nature could ever be tempted by it. So I believe that he could not have sinned. And also in addition to that, it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus would be the sinless sacrifice for sin. And so he couldn't have. And I know that gets really tangled. That's four questions. Second thing we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the varied forms of temptation. And we saw this here and we compared it with Genesis chapters 2, 3, and what we noted is 1 John chapter 2, John says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. Watch, this is key. This is not just any desire of the flesh, it's the sinful lusts of the flesh. It's the sinful lust of the eye. It's not a pride that you're like, you know what, I care about my reputation, I'm not living for what everybody thinks, but I do care. I I don't want to drag down the name of Christ. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Yes, I care about my reputation. That's not a bad form of pride, but it can turn, if you're not careful, into a sinful form of pride. And so what we noted are three forms. They're all found here in Matthew. Lust of the flesh, it is not... uh, Let's go ahead and have our next note. Watch this. So what we see in Matthew is God is aware that Jesus has desires, human desires, fleshly desires, food, oxygen, water, sleep, rest, whatever it may be. When God calls us to limit, the, limit satisfying those desires, or when God says to wait, you can, maybe, maybe it's this, go ahead and do whatever you want in that. Have all of it you want, and it won't be sin sometimes. A lot of times it's satisfy that desire, but in a limited way. Or sometimes it's wait to satisfy that desire. And then sometimes we have desires that God says, you're never going to have that desire met in this life. And when it comes up, I want it to drive you to me. But when those happen, and that's what happens here in Matthew, when our human desires 
are limited or told to wait or said not going to happen, it's not God's will for you, be careful because in that moment they become gateways to sinful temptation. And Satan wants to play on that. So last week, first week, sin is tempting. Second week, we saw that Satan is real. He's very real. Two points again we noted. The reality of Satan. Some people say, you Christians, you've lost your minds, particularly your preacher up there. He talks to a being he's never seen, about creatures he's never seen. Bless his heart. And you guys actually go out there and listen to him. Note this. If you deny the existence of Satan, who's mentioned in many books of the Bible, then you're denying a prominent reality of Scripture. Now, watch. I know you have it on the screen, and that's by design. I want you to hear it and see it reviewing. If you will be used by God, not only is Satan real, but the demonic hordes that work under him, they are real. If you will be used by God, being effectively used by God, then count on it. I think they're very limited. They don't have unlimited resources. The more you do for God, the more they're going to oppose you. But we can take comfort. They know that the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And the great power in any room, any car, any setting, any wilderness... Wherever you're at, backyard, your house, here, wherever, the great power in that place is always the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. What if, what if there's a hundred of them attacking me? They know that the Holy Spirit in you is the most powerful force. He has authority. All right. Then we looked last week at the tactics of Satan. We saw them right in the text. We noted about six, three of them in the first note. Satan attacks after a great victory. Be careful. He attacks when we're weak, and he attacks when we're alone. After a great victory, be careful. When you're weak, he's not going to feel sorry for you. He's going to pounce on you. And when you're alone, especially, he's really going to target you. Three more. We noted that Satan tries to pervert God's truths. Twist them. He does that with Psalm 91. We also noted that he tries to encourage shortcuts. Jesus, why are you hungry? You have the power. Use it for yourself. Here, just jump off of this. They'll love it. It'll be a grand entrance. Here, you're going to have these kingdoms anyway. Just bow down and worship me. Take a little shortcut. Don't wait on God's plan. But Jesus will have none of it. And then the fourth thing that we said transitions us into this week is Satan tries to attack our identity. And I, I left you with this thought. Please hear it. If Satan has the audacity to test, try to deny and attack the identity of the very eternal Son of God... How much more will he do that with you and I? You better believe he will. And you'd better know your identity in Christ. And so that led us to today. So, yes, sin is tempting. Satan is real. But kind of if we were going to give a, a title to this week, we could say that Jesus is stronger than sin. He defeats sinful temptation. And he defeats Satan. So this week what we want to do is really study what Jesus did. So that's our review. How long, I don't know how long that took. All right. So today, message three. All right. Now, quick confession. Those of you that are here the last two weeks, you may have had some times in those messages. I remember I would hear my pastor preach and teach on things. And not only was it informative, but it was very interesting. He knew so much. And I remember thinking, man, I've never thought of that. That, and yes, and you're reading it, yes, that's in my life, that, that explains something. Those are awesome when the Word of God is interesting and maybe a light bulb moment or an aha moment. And perhaps over the last two weeks something was said and you're like, yes, that makes sense now. This week, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, 
you may not have that as often, and this may not be new to you. Some of you may be like, this sounds almost like a review, but I want to be very clear. This is the most important message of the three. However you're feeling right now, you may say, I'm not feeling as engaged as I did. It's kind of hard three times around, I understand. But today is the more important of the three. You say, why is that? Because remember, one of the purposes of Jesus going through the temptation was for him to show us, to illustrate for us how to defeat sin, how to defeat an attack from Satan. The way I would word it is this. What Jesus does is always way more important than what Satan does. But what Satan's doing is interesting. But what Jesus does is the key. Be aware of Satan, but really focus, emulate, follow the example where Christ, what he does is way more important than what they do. Very key. Why? Watch. Sins, forms, varied forms of coming to me, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, it's going to be one of those avenues. They may vary. Our response to them does not change. We looked at five or six ways that Satan attacks. He may vary his attack in the angle or the timing from which he comes. That, it's the, that can be varied. Our response to each one of those ways of attack is the exact same. It's the key. Do what Christ did. And I want to give you a little help here. Put this in your head. When sin tempts and when Satan attacks... The solution is not merely try harder. That's not the solution. What should I do? I think I'm really being attacked. Boy, I've got some sin in my life. It is really coming after. Here's what you do. You just try harder. Oh, okay. There was one skit that I saw one time. Hey, with this and this and this keeps happening. What should I do? Yeah, stop it. Just stop it. Oh, Okay. <laughs> That may work once or twice, and I do realize Second Peter says to add to our faith, bend all our energy, make maximum effort so it's not as though we sit back and do nothing. What I'm trying to tell you is don't waste your energy on merely trying to say no. Do something in addition to that, something very specific, and I want to look at two things. So we've kind of had three main thoughts of this passage. Each main thought has had two sub-thoughts under it. And so I want us to look this morning at two things that Jesus did. Number one. Jesus, this is key. I want you to start setting it in right now. So Jesus is being attacked. His very identity is being attacked. What does Jesus do? Jesus knew and claimed his identity. Jesus does not run from or deny or forget. Jesus knew who he was. He claims who he is. He relies on it. Yes, Psalm 91 applies to him, but he is also the sinless son of God, and he will remain that. He cannot be anything other than what he is. And so the other day I'm typing some thoughts out, and I have something in my head. I'm going to confess you are probably not going to get what's in my head because it is so, so simple. You may even say that's stupidly simple, but I'm going to offer it to you, okay? Sorry. I believe that at least two things and probably... You may add another, but I think these are the two dominant themes, things that determine a person's true identity. I'm telling you, Christ knows his identity, claims it, relies on it. What I'm trying to tell us this morning, Jeff included, we need to know our true identity. Christ knew his. It is very important. So I want to say that two things determine your true identity. Number one, here's the part probably won't connect. So what are the two things? Number one, facts. 
facts. You are what you are. So yeah, you're right, Jeff. That is pretty much a dud. That fell flat. I don't, I don't see anything special in that. Listen to me. Christian, I'm talking to Christians. If you have not yet put your, faith, your full faith and trust in Christ alone to save you, then this does not apply to you, but I'm talking to Christians. You are what you are. You say, what if I don't know what I am? It doesn't change what you are. You say, what if I learn it, but I forget it? You still are what you are. You say, what if in the moment I don't feel it? Yeah, that happens to me all the time. But I don't feel it. I love when I feel it. But whether you feel it or whether you're remembering it, whether you're claiming it, you are what you are. What do you mean? I am the son of Charles and Louise Bartlett of Weaverville, North Carolina. I am the father of Erica and Jonathan Bartlett of Anderson, South Carolina. I was there. I was there when when Erica was given birth to and she stayed with us all the first night. I was there when she cut herself with her fingernails and left herself a little scar. And that one went home with us and that one grew up and that one still had the little scar there. Uh, I don't even know if that's gotten better, I think. I think it has as it's older, but it's still a little bit there. Um, Is it? I don't know. A little bit there. First day. First day in this world. Long fingernails. Whack. Oh, (laughs) I cannot stop. Now, I realize, and I hope this is none of you, things happen in families where their identity can get strained or particularly their acceptance of an identity. You are no longer my son. You are not my daughter. I disown you. Oh, yeah, well, you're not my mom. You're not my father. That can happen. Praise the Lord. It's never happened in our family. But the bottom line, if Charles and Louise, they've never done it. I hope I don't do anything to make them do that. But if they were ever to say, you're no longer our son. Actually, I am. (laughs) You may not want it to be but you can't change the facts. Jesus, and this is what irritates me with Satan. How dare you? He is the Son of God. How dare you question? He is. Two plus two is four. It is still four. He is the Son of God. You are what you are. And then the second thought is a little more to the text and the point. Two facts determine a person's true identity. Facts, you are what you are. And then number two, what God says. You are, Christian, hear this this morning. You are who God says you are. You've got, you're not going to get it this morning. I need to be reminded of it all the time. I'm going to invite you, take this home. Chew on this. If you're going through a struggle, if you're not, chew on it anyway so that you're prepared when you do go through a struggle. You are who God says you are. You say, what if I don't know who God says I am? Then you need to be learning who God says you are. You need to be learning it. Would you notice three passages? And the whole point of this, we, we, honestly, we could put 30. But we don't have time for 30. I want, you, I want you to look. They'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. Psalm 119, verse 160. Psalm 119, longest chapter, if you want to call Psalms chapters. Longest chapter in the Bible, verse 120. Look at the text. The, this is talking about God's Word. The sum of your word is truth. So the psalmist is writing, talking about God, God's speech, God's Word. The sum, the whole of it. In other words, all of it. 
Psalm 119, 16. This is, this is important for what we're talking about today. The sum of your word is truth. In other words, God, if I can find you saying something that rightly divided, properly interpreted and applied, that affects me, then I can take it to the bank. Why? The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Titus chapter 2. I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1, verse number 2. And I'll go ahead and tell you that this verse is one of the key verses that has changed my life when I was 12 years old. I used to doubt my salvation. I got saved when I was nine, and I'd question my salvation from the time I was nine to the time I was 12. I'd hear messages on going to hell, and it would rock my world, and I would pray the prayer again. Stop it. Stop it. Verse number two. Reading my Bible, I think in a devotional setting. Little 12-year-old kid, this struck me. In hope of eternal life. That's what I want. Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Read it again. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages again began. So here's what it's saying. God promised eternal life before the ages began, and God never lies. That's very important. God never lies. The whole, the sum of his word is truth. God never lies. Now, I want you to go here. Get your Bible. Go with me back to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. Because we're going to read about three or four verses here. You may even want to put a little marker. Isaiah 55. Verse number 8. Wish we had time to back up verse 6 and 7, but we don't. Isaiah 55, verse 8, God is using his word to inform us of some things about him. So right now, every Christian, just in your heart, while you're flipping, right, real quick, talk to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, would you teach me some of this, what's in this text and, and this point, how Jesus knew and claimed his identity and how I need to know and claim my identity. Verse number 8, here's what God says about humans. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God's simply saying, I don't think like you. I don't act like you. Jeff, I'm not like you. Yes, Jeff, you were made in my image, so you're like me in some ways, but on the whole, I don't think like you, and I don't act like you. Lord, like, like a little, you're a little different? Verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, uh-oh, in this analogy, I'm the earth, his thoughts are the heaven. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So no, Jeff, it's not a little gap. It's an enormous gap. So Lord, exactly how are your ways and your thoughts different? And God's going to give us an example. Here's what he's saying. Let's start with my words. My words are different than yours. How? Verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down. Yes, they have come down in Anderson, South Carolina in 2018, 2019. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, you say, well, technically they do. They evaporate back. Hold on. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth. They're on an assignment first. They water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Here's what he's saying. The rain does that. 
Yes, it'll eventually be evaporated back, but it's on a mission. It's washing things down. It's hydrating things. It's producing seed. It's producing wheat and bread and barley and all of those things that the animal, all of it, the whole thing, we can't live without water. The rain does its job. Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. I got to tell you guys, as a preacher, I take comfort in that. Every teacher, if you're a teacher of a Sunday school, Bible study, a little small group, whatever it may be, you need to take comfort in this because you may say, boy, there's some days I think I did a better job than other days. Here's something we really take encouragement from. God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Now, by the way, if you have a message or a lesson that is void of Bible teaching, well, then you wasted the people's time. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Just as the rain accomplishes what it was sent to do, my word, look at verse 11 at the end, it shall accomplish that which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It will do the job. It will, it will do it. J.I. Packer writes the following. I think you have it in your notes if you want to fill this in. Packer says of God's word, again, the whole, the sum of it is truth. Titus 1 verse 2, God never lies. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11, God says, my word, it's going to accomplish. It will accomplish, it will succeed. Packer writes, quote, God's word is his executive instrument in all human affairs. So I read that and I think, what in the world does Packer mean? What he means, guys, is God does not use hands. He does not use biceps, triceps, deltoids. He doesn't use any of those things. You say, then how does God do the things that he does? He created the whole universe. Surely he took some of this. And, no. What Again, continue with Packer's quote. God's word, he doesn't use hands. God's word is his executive instrument in all human affairs. Of him, as of no one else... It is true that what he says goes. So I'll, say, I'll repeat something I said earlier. Because that human quote, it's not on a level of the Word of God, but because it is derived from truth of the Word of God, he's on to something. God, if I can find you saying something that does apply to me, then Packer's correct. Of him, as of no one else, I'm not like you, my ways are higher than yours. It is true. What he says goes. It is in truth the Word of God that rules the world. I'm like, what? The Word of God rules the world, and it is the Word of God that fixes our fortunes. Can I propose it this way? Whether it be prophets in the Old Testament or apostles in the New Testament, when they are speaking or writing the prophecies of God, watch this, when they are speaking God's prophecies, their messengers carrying God's actual words, when they're in that role, not everything they ever say, but when they're in that role of being inspired, speaking forth God's word, the prophets were the most powerful people on the planet. Because whatever they write or speak about a nation, mark it down, that's going to happen. But it hadn't happened yet. It's taken a long time. It's going to happen. What they say about an individual, it's going to happen. So my point in those three texts that we just looked at is this. Guys, ladies... Trust what God says. And along with that, I would say, no. Hear me. Trust what God says. It's going to happen. Know what God says. 
So this week, I was thinking, as I do each week, try to evaluate things. Can I just acknowledge something that many of you have probably thought? Uh, Deanna is like me in this. I get it. We come off probably a little gung-ho with how much we emphasize Bible teaching, right? If you go to one of her Bible studies, you're not going to be there 30 minutes. And if you come hear one of my sermons, you're, if ever, but very rarely going to be there 30, 40 minutes. Can I tell you what I'm aware of and what I feel? Some pressure each week. I believe, I'm pretty confident because you guys are such great people. Because you are so awesome. And because of things like our worship team and good music and just a good atmosphere, a good feel. I do believe that there are people who would come here that don't, but they would come. I don't have anybody in mind. Maybe you're saying, oh, I know someone. They would come, several, maybe quite a few, if I would just preach 40 minutes. That would be 10 minutes longer than they really want. But if you just preach 40 minutes, if you you just kind of be sure that go from there to 1140 and a five-minute wrap-up, if you'll just let them out at 1145, there are people, they would come. I really believe they would. I know, I feel it. I I would love it if the Lord would let me be that guy. And I hope he does for your sake and mine and all of that. I know we come across a little gung-ho. Why, Jeff? Here's why. Because there's a huge difference. Our point here is that Jesus knew and claimed his identity. There's a huge difference between Christ and us. It's this difference. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He's always known who he is. We're not the eternal sons of God. We changed. We have to learn a new identity. And it takes us a long time. I have taught things over and over and over. And then one time somebody will come up and it's like, hey, I got I'm like, Yeah. I'm glad you got it the 31st time. Or this always happened over at school. A chapel speaker would come through. I have Bible class. They hear me 180 days. Chapel speaker comes through, speaks on something, and it's a light bulb moment. I'm like, I've taught that 180 days. But whatever. Praise the Lord. If the Lord used that, glad it connects. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Neil Anderson writes the following. We'll use him a little bit today. This is important. Did you catch that? Jesus, the Christ, is the eternal Son of God. He's always known who He was, who He is. We change. God, He doesn't change. We change. We have to learn. This is a great quote from Neil Anderson. And by the way, when I quote folks, I do not endorse everything that they write or say. I am endorsing this quote. Quote, hear it. Renewing our minds does not come naturally. I got saved when I was nine. Instantly, an upload took place. I know all the truths of Christ. I know who I know. It does not happen that way. Renewing our minds does not come naturally. There, hear me, Christian. He writes, there is no automatic delete button that erases past programming. So what do we have to do? We have to consciously, consciously know the Word of God so that we can understand who we are from God's perspective. 
Nobody in here, you just, I became a Christian and I just naturally knew my identity in Christ and it's forever settled. No, you have to consciously, he's exactly right, we have to consciously spend time learning and knowing the truths of the Word of God. I brought up here with me today, this is my copy, so if I do forget and leave it, it's got lots of highlights, uh, please make sure it gets back to me. Um, so here's a book by Neil Anderson called Who I Am in Christ. By the way, I can't 100% endorse everything in here, but probably a good 90, high 90 some percent of it. And there's some things I'd be like, why didn't he say more or develop that further? I'm part of a men's group. There are now seven of us in it. And now we started out every week, but now every other week we meet and we go through a chapter of this. You say, what does that mean? Yeah, he has 36 chapter titles that he's just going through, truths out of the Word of God, who, am, who I am in Christ. And we spend a week on this truth, and then we spend a week on that truth, and a week on this truth. I'm going to tell you, it was thrown out to the men about a year ago, and some bit, some schedules wouldn't work. I totally get that. Other schedules would have worked. You could have been part of a men's group. It's right there for you, and it would have really been helping you, but you didn't do it. Same thing with Bible studies with the ladies. They're made available. Next Saturday, if you come, you will be blessed. You will grow in your identity in Christ. You will be reminded or enlightened of things. But if you just let it pass by, I know you're like, Jeff's being mean. Listen to me. I'm encouraging you to be take a good resource like that and just slowly go over it and over it and over it. So I said he has 36 chapters. I want to share 11 titles with you. I want you to hear these titles. I'm doing a little out of order than he gave them, but I'm going to throw them out. Who I, who I am in Christ, 11 out of 36. So don't just hear, oh, okay, that sounds like an issue. No. Enter into an awareness. If you're a true Christian, here's what I want you to do. Hear this as talking about you. Hear, I'm going to give a simple phrase. A chapter is titled this. You've you got to internalize it. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sin. Every Christian, you need to be, you need to be tasting that. I have, been for, I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sin. Now, there may be a human being who does not forgive you of your sin. But the one who matters the most, I have been... Y'all know what redeemed means? It means to be purchased to be bought. I was a slave or I was kidnapped and captive. I was a servant to this. A price had to be paid to bring me out of that bondage, to ransom me or to buy me out of slavery. A whole chapter. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sin, even the ones I've not done yet. Another title. I Hear this. You ought to say it in your head as I'm reading I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I don't understand it all. All I know is this. God placed some value on Jeff that is not inherent in Jeff. And God placed value and says, I am buying you. I'm paying a price. The price is the blood, the life's blood of my son, Jesus. Here's a title, chapter. I have been justified. What does that mean? If you know it, say it. To be justified means to be. Yes, what I, I'm assuming what you said is true. I have been justified. You know what justified means? That the judge of all the judges has already had my case. I'm never going to stand at the great white throne judgment with unsaved people. 
I'm never going to hear a judgment. Am I condemned to hell or am I going to get to heaven? That's already been done. God's already said, I declare you righteous. But God, I'm not righteous. But my son is righteous. And remember, he took all of your sin. He became all of your sin. He paid for that on the cross. And he gave you his righteousness. I look at you. I see my righteous son, Jesus Christ. I've already declared you right. But what if I commit sin between now and heaven? I've already declared you righteous. If you as a Christian hear what I just said and said, well, I'm going to go out and sin. Then you're not in the body. You're not a believer. That truth never says, I'm going to go live ungodly. No, wow, Lord, you forgive me of the sins I've not even. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. Go with me. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. Flip over there very quickly. 1 John, you're going to need to see this. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. So far, I'm going to have to speed up, I realize that. I have been redeemed and forgiven. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I have been justified. He has a chapter entitled, I have been adopted as God's child. If you're a Christian, you say, I hope you already know that. Look at chapter 3, verse number 1. John, the beloved disciple, the youngest of the 12, writes the following. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love. See what kind of love. See, behold, really contemplate, really think about it. Christian, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. An unbeliever may say, yeah, he calls you his children. But you're not really his children. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Oh, no, no. He doesn't just call us his children. By the way, if that's all he did, that's more than we deserve. That's more than we could ever ask. But no, he does more than that. We really are his children. How is this possible? John says the reason why the world does not know us, they look and say, I don't don't see anything special. You don't look any different from the people around you. You don't look like the children of God. Well, there's a reason. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Well, of course you can't recognize the children of God. God's eternal son lived among mankind for 33 years. Mankind has a habit of missing it when it comes to identifying God's true children. They missed it. You don't know God, you're not going to recognize his children. Verse 2, to drive it home, John says, beloved. And if you're hearing this Christian saying, yes, one of these days I'm going to be God's child. I'm really good. No, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. No one takes that knowledge and says, then I'm going to live sinfully. We take that knowledge and say, I want to live a godly life to the glory of God. So here's the list. I'm really going quicker. One chapter says, I've been redeemed and forgiven. Another, I've been bought with a price. You need to be Christian. You need to be learning. Jesus knew who he was. You need to be internalizing. This is what God says. God, the sum of his word. God never lies. God says, my word goes out, and it will accomplish. If you don't get on board with what I'm saying, you're going to live a difficult life. It'll be a much better life, a life more abundant, if you'll just go ahead and accept what I say about you once you put your faith and trust in Christ. These things are true of me since 1979. Continue. I've been justified I've been adopted as God's child. I am, here's one, whole chapter, I am accepted. 
A lot of men, they say, live, live their lives trying to live up some internal, unconscious, just pressure, trying to live up to some either stated or unstated expectation of their dad. And he may be dead. They'll never know, but they're going to go through life driven. Man, what drives you? I don't even know. But subconsciously, they're driven, trying to be accepted by dad. Will my dad approve of me? And a lot of you women, it's the same thing with you and your mom. You don't even know it, or maybe you know it, like, oh, it terrifies me. I just want my mom to approve of me. Listen, I hope they approve of you, but here's what I know. If they never do, my heavenly Father's already said, you are accepted with me. You're accepted to the very throne room, not just one day going to go to heaven. You come talk to me anytime. You are accepted. Right now, you're accepted. Here's one that a lot of people struggle with, a lot of Christians. Whole chapter, four words. I am a saint. I'm a saint. That is so biblical. I wrote this down the other day. Saints are not just people we name cute holidays in Catholic churches after. You need to get that. Saints are not just people we name cute little holidays in Catholic churches. I think most Catholic churches have to be named Saint something. You say, then if those aren't saints, who are the saints? All Christians are saints. All Christians have been set apart to God. If, Christian, there's somebody in here, you struggle, this is what you do. You right now, you identify yourself by some past sin. It may be one sin, one sin, or one season of sin, and somebody identify, they identify you with that sin or that season of sin. God says, I don't do that. I don't play that little game. Don't ever go through life, Christian, and say, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a lying, thieving, blaspheming, lustful, you name it. Lying, if I've already said that, just sinner. That's the old you. I realize that Paul says he's the, he was the chief of sinners. He's talking about Paul before he came to Christ. Don't let anybody, Christian, don't let yourself or anybody identify you by some past sin. You need to go through life realizing I'm not perfect, but I am a saint according to the word of God. Read the epistles. Read Paul's epistles. He addresses them not to one or two saints, to the saints of the church in Ephesus, Thessalonica, and Philippi, and others. Let me fly through these. I am a member of Christ's body. I'm really getting bogged down here because this clock keeps moving back there. Man, somebody moved it ahead. Bless your hearts. There's some folks. You may be a guest here this morning, first time. But if you're a Christian, you're at home. There may be someone, you've been coming here for a year, three years. And in your heart, when you walk in, you still feel like a guest. Like you don't belong. Stop it. You want to, are you a Christian? You're like, oh, I'm absolutely a Christian. All right, you're in the body. You belong. Believe it. I am complete. I'm a citizen of heaven. You say, I'm a citizen of the United States. That is so temporary. You need to right now. I am a citizen of heaven. That makes me on assignment. I'm an ambassador doing work for that kingdom. I need to get busy. I am God's temple. I am God's temple. He lives inside of you right now. Here's one we don't even understand at all. I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies, not later, right now. That means I'm very close to the throne of God because Christ is at the right hand of God. And I can pray right there from that. Just write me. I'm in Christ. He's in the heavenlies, even though I'm right here at 120 Centerville Road. Hey, guys, here's the key. 
These aren't arrogant statements. These aren't based on how you feel. I don't feel like it. That doesn't matter. This is what you are. That's what you are. These are real statements that apply to all Christians. If there's a Christian here this morning and your mentality of God goes something like this, he's angry with furrowed brow at me or he's up there just shaking his head and just so disappointed. You need to get a new view. Back to Matthew. What do we learn? Number two, not only did Jesus know and claim his identity, but Jesus knew and claimed specific promises of God. Jesus knew and claimed specific promises. Every word of that is is key. So as I read chapter four, it occurs to me, Jesus, because he's God at any moment, do y'all understand this? At any moment, he could have annihilated Satan. Satan's tempting him and attacking him. At any moment, Jesus could, uh, seriously, guys, as he's beaten down, hadn't eaten in 40 days, he could have just said, you know what? I'm kind of tired of you. I mean, not move anything, just a word. I'm going to go ahead and send you on down. You're going to the, ch- the chains of darkness and the pit, the eternal fire. You're going to be going there right now. Boom. And all the angels, Lord, where'd he go? Yeah, I sent him. Just done. He's done. Tired of him. But that's not what he did. Or he could have just said to the Satan, do you realize I am holding you together and all I have to do to get rid of you is just stop holding you together? I just have to let go. I don't have to huff and puff and even speak. I just have to relax. You're only here by my good graces. But that's not what, Jesus never pulls the God card. Grace for you, you got to hear me this morning. I think one of the reasons he doesn't pull the God card and just blast him is because that wouldn't help us in our struggle because we can't pull the God card. We're not God. So what does Jesus do? He uses a whole other method that we can replicate. He does something that we can copy and we can have the same equal power if you want to write it down. The power to withstand temptation comes from relying on God's spirit, that's what Christ does. He always lives life in the spirit, even in the wilderness. He relies on the Holy Spirit of God to properly apply God's promises to the situation. Jesus doesn't just say no in verse number four. He doesn't say just no in verse number seven. He doesn't say no in verse number 10. He applies a passage of scripture. Now, Skip ahead if you would. Go over, hold your place there. Go over to Ephesians chapter 6. Need to flip over there for a moment. Ephesians chapter 6. Kind of a familiar passage. Touch on it. Ephesians chapter 6. And this is important. So important. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I'm going to fly through verse 10 to 16 so we can get to 17 and 18. Here we go. Very theological book, very theological. Finished with some practical stuff, and now he's winding it down. Church at Ephesus. You could almost say, hey, Grace View, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, not yourself, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You're going to need all the armor. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it's not like, hey, I'm going to just try harder. Try harder on your own. After a little while, you're going to lose. So verse 13, you better have more than that. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So now it gets more specific. That was just all broad. 
Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. You're gonna need some truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that by faith I know I've been given. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He continues, here's the plan. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. You're gonna need some trust and belief and faith. Why is that so important? With which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, here it comes, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying. Praying is so important. Jesus was fasting. I'm assuming, assuming he was in a spirit of prayer. Those two go together. So that's why he's able to win the victory. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer, asking, and supplication, which means pleading earnestly, desperately, because you're lacking. So praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, with all supplication for all the saints. Go back to verse 17. Look at verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Now this sounds like an offensive weapon. It is. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's some men in here tonight. And y'all were with me about six, seven weeks ago. I realized that maybe two months ago. On a Wednesday night, we were separated, and we covered these next thoughts for a few minutes. I'm throwing it out again. You see the phrase in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see that, that, the Word of God? That is not, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar, but you can look it up. That is not the word logos, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. That was talking about Jesus is the Logos, the express, the expression of God, the wisdom of God. I understand. So that's that. That's not this word. This is important. Verse number 17. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's not Logos. It's Rhema, R-H-E-M-A. You say Rhema, Logos. What does it matter? Rhema, this is key, means utterance. Write this down. What's our sword of the Spirit? It's not just the Bible. Rhema means to use an utterance. It means a specific portion of Scripture to combat specific temptations. Use specific portions of Scripture to attack specific temptations. You got to apply. That's exactly what Jesus does. Do you notice it? Hey, you've got power. Turn those stones into bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Just jump. Psalm 91, right? But it's also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Bow down and worship me. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou serve. Jesus, every time a temptation is thrown at him, he he knows and claims the exact passage of Scripture that fits the temptation. Question. How are you being tempted? How are you being tempted? Is there a sin or a couple of sins that have been whipping you lately? If they have, you say, I've just been losing. You need you don't need to go, okay, wow, I'm really be tempting. I'm, 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 going, I'm being tempted. I'm going to read my Bible. We've been in Matthew, so I'm going to read Matthew 1 in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, Abraham's father of Isaac, Isaac the father. This, I just don't get much when I read the Bible. It's not helping me. No, you're not in the specific passage that you need to apply to your specific situation. I really don't have time. I wished I had 20 minutes to go into these. These are some passages that have helped me. When we have fear, look at the text. You'll see them on the screen. When we have fear, I have learned. These, these are ones I've used. 2 Timothy 1.7, look at that. 
By the way, some of you get afraid. You get very timid. Paul, who's in prison, tells Timothy, God gave us the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God gave us the spirit. There's a, this is a promise. Here's what God said. Hey, by the way, but I don't feel like it. Doesn't matter what you feel like. I'm just telling you. If you're afraid and timid, that's you. That's not me. I didn't give that to you. I've given you the spirit of power, love, and self-control. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Look at it. Here's a promise. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Verse 3 is a promise. I have, I have lived there sometimes. You say, Jeff, like when? Verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. Do y'all know that you're sitting beside somebody that if we ask them to come up and just, if they just, like right now, would you, excuse me, ma'am, would you, sir, would you just come up and read that Ephesians passage? You'd start, like, get shortness of breath, and you'd, like, Palms would be sweating, and you'd be like, I can't even think. Some of you would be like, oh, I'll do that in a heartbeat. No big deal. Okay, yeah, we hate you, okay? <laughs> All right. Most of you sitting there going, ugh. Here's what you got to understand. That is me. That is me. So, so many times I had to live here. James chapter 1, verse number 5, when we need wisdom, James chapter 1, verse number 5, look at that text. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given him. Over a year and a half period, I prayed that prayer. I claimed that verse literally hundreds of times, praying over staff hires in the last three and a half years, last two and a half, really. We got a new thing on the agenda. Don't know where God's going to lead in it. I'm already claiming James 1 5. What about when we're battling depression? Philippians, by the way, if that just caught your attention, you're like, boy, I'm really fighting some serious discouragement. I've been there. I feel for you. I feel for you. In 2003, I think I was either in it or very close to depression. I had been losing to jealousy for years. You say, you're depressed today? No. And I could get into it tomorrow. Today I'm not. I'll tell you where I live, though. I lived in Philippians 4. This just over and over. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Hey, that means a lot. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So you got to have some thanksgiving. Don't be anxious. Make your requests. Okay? Verse Seven, if you do those things, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it'll blow your mind. It did me in 2003 when this, when, the, when this started happening. It'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And one thing I really had to work on was Philippians 4, 8, because I was getting this exactly backwards. Jeff, why do you think you were struggling with so much jealousy? And why were you struggling so much with depression and, and being so discouraged and downtrodden? I was flipping Philippians 4.8, it says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Jeff was going through life thinking about fantasy and lies and sinful things and discouraging situations. 
If you're sitting here this morning and think, I'm just so discouraged, I think I'm depressed. Do you feed your mind discouraging thoughts all day long? Do you feed your mind sinful thoughts? Do you feed your mind just fantasy? It isn't even real. You're just, just dwelling in fantasy and lies. Stop it and start feeding it truth. Romans 6, what about when we're battling sin? I just want to be free from sin. There's a particular sin. Go to Romans 6 and 11. Romans 6, verse 6, 11, and 12, and I don't have time to even read those. Would you write this down? To be successful in the fight against sin and Satan, guys, we must use specific portions of Scripture, the specific rhema of God. So if I could say it this way, God's Word is always powerful, but God's Word is most powerful when it is applied and used specifically and timely. In the moment, apply specific portion of Scripture in the timely fashion. That's where the real power comes from. In Matthew 4, which has been our text, Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says something very important that, that, that occurred to me the other day. He says, man, grace few people, man shall not live by bread alone. We do need that but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That tells me Jesus just put a ranking system. Yes, you have to have physical bread. And somebody sitting here this morning, I'm diabetic. I have to have food. True. True. I'm going to tell you what you have to have more than physical food. You need spiritual food, and it is the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. He literally, I've said this over and over. Physical outranks financial, and spiritual outranks physical. You need spiritual food even more than you need physical food. And probably right now, most Christians are saying, Jeff, that's the truth. Yeah, I agree with that. In your head. My question is, did last week match what your head just says? Oh, yeah, spiritual food, we've got to have it. If we're going to live life really abundantly, we have to have spiritual food. It's even more important than physical food. Did your last week's habits of reading and thinking match what your brain just said? Jesus made a rank. If you agree with the rank, does your life match it? J.C. Riles said the following. He says, knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. This is a great quote, even though you're going to hate the grammar. Renee wanted, wanted me, I think, to change the grammar. All I could do is pull a direct quote. J.C. Ryle says, knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. It can only be got, I know you want to say it can only be gotten. It can only be got by hard, regular, daily, attentive, wakeful reading. That's a good quote. Knowledge of the Bible, your identity in Christ, claiming specific promises. I need some of these specific rhemas. They're not just going to pop in your head. You didn't get saved. And again, just get the download. You have to consciously learn the Word of God. Knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. It can only be got by hard, regular, daily, attentive, wakeful reading. Years ago, I tried to adopt something. Please hear me. I'm going to share my heart. And I'm going to very quickly hit the last partial page. And I'm going to wrap up. We're not going to sing. I tried to adopt a little slogan, and I, do, I would not want anybody to adopt this legalistically. But I try to live by it. 
It goes like this. No Bible. Do you remember it, Jonathan? No breakfast. That's my world. I talked to someone who's in the construction industry this past week on Monday. They got to get their crew going. They can't do that. But they acknowledged they can do the middle of the day. Or some of you are like, I am so not a morning person. If I try to read my Bible then, I'll get nothing. Okay. Part two. No scripture. No sleep. And I'm not being legalistic. Jeff, is there, there are some days. But as a general rule, I'm not eating any food over there until I've had this food. That's me. I'm a, I have a morning schedule. No Bible, no breakfast. For you, it may be no Bible, no lunch. No Bible, no snack. No Bible, no TV. Man, now that I can dig in there. No Bible, no social media. Don't look at that nonsense if you haven't already guaranteed in your schedule you're going to spend time in the Word of God. How insulting. Sorry, God, I don't have time. I only spend three hours on this. What a lie. Jeff is so mean. Today, he's keeping us long, and he's mean. Verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Just turn, just use your power. No, we should not live by bread alone. Jump. No, you don't test the Lord your God. Bow down and worship me. No. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and that is his pattern. I didn't have room for this. Should have put it in there. Satan knows God's word is true. He hopes you don't. Satan knows it's true. Jesus pulled out Bible, Bible, Bible. What are you going to do about it? I've got stuff to do. That's what I thought. Get out of here. You don't belong in here. He hopes you don't know it's true. He hopes you don't know it, and he hopes you don't claim it. But guys, if you'll learn it and claim it. I said I was going to hit this. You see, I already did. Gave 11. I'm going to fly through some chapter time. Just throw them out. I'm trying to whet your appetite. Renee's got 10 more of these coming in this week. They cost us $12. Take about a week on each chapter. Just read it over and over. Let it sink in. Learn who you are in Christ. Because of the earlier chapters, Anderson has more chapters. Again, this is not all. I'm going to fly. Here we go. I am secure. I am free forever from condemnation. I am confident that the good work God has begun in me will be perfected. We sang it this morning. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can find grace and mercy in time of need. I am assured that all things work together for good. I am assured. It's not fun right now. I am assured that all things work together for good. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am a minister of reconciliation. I'm supposed to have a job. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Boy, you Christians are arrogant. No, that's just taking God at his word. Everything I said, all 22 of his chapters, are backed by Scripture. So here's your last note. I promise. Here we go. I've said before, when you're tempted by sin, and it's that same old sin, speak to it. Go to Romans 6. Speak to the sin. Like, oh, there he goes again, that guy that talks to somebody he's never seen about creatures he's never seen. Now he's telling people to talk to their sin. Yeah, I've been saying that for a couple of years. Now I'm updating it. It's the same with our unseen enemy. At times of temptation, 
Follow the example of Christ in Matthew 4. Notice he doesn't just sit there and think the truth. Jesus speaks the truth out loud. There is a conversation. You're going to come at me with that? Oh, yeah? God has not given me the spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Stop trying to make me a scaredy cat and all timid. God has not given us the spirit of fear. He says, God, now you've got to back me up on this because it looks like we're about to get in a tussle here. He says he will keep them in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on him. So I'm going to focus on him and stop being so scared. Got to say it out loud. I could say it this way. Rehearse the gospel over and over until it sinks in so deeply. And when it does, that's when the real power comes and that's when the enemy takes off. He does not like Bible study. Would you close your eyes just for a moment? Close your eyes just for a moment. We close the same exact way we did last week. Same thing. So Christian, I want to ask you, just before I pray, a few questions. Here they are. Do you know your identity in Christ? Be honest. Did any of those 22 things, you're like, I don't really think I've grasped that. Do you know what comes with that? I mean, power and access and security comes with that. So I have three more questions, and then I'm praying. Here it is. What is your plan to learn what God says about you? Do you have a plan? If you're like, I guess I'll do what I've been doing. If you haven't been on a specific plan to learn, just work your way through the Bible, and guys, when you come across something, like, Lord, that's in my regular reading. I need that, or I needed that years ago. This is going to help me. Or a message, like, wow, I'm going to mark that in my Bible. I'm going to go back. I'm going to memorize that. The last two questions. What specific rhema, specific portion of Scripture do you need to meditate on? Which one? And then lastly, which specific rhema, portion of Scripture do you need to research and locate? You're like, I don't even know where it is. I need some help. Research it. Locate it. Bible counselor's job is not to fix people. It's to show them the tools. And now you've got to go put it in your life. Father, thank you for these folks' attention this morning.